Friends, our second reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. This particular passage is the opening to that letter. The very first sentences that Paul writes to this community of believers. A community that in many respects is not that unlike our own. A church full of people who are imperfect, who are broken, and too often misguided. So, friends, let us listen now again with open ears and hearts as we hear these words of God from 1 Corinthians, beginning with the first verse of the opening chapter. Let us listen for God's word. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way. With all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Today's sermon title has changed from 8.30 to 11. I'm going to call it the perception problem. Let us pray. God, we come here as people who realize that our eyes are not the only things we are called to see with. And as a result, we come as people who realize that our eyes are not the only things that are blind to much in our world. God, through the work of your spirit, change our perspective that it will become yours and that yours will become ours. Help us, O God, to see what you see and then live accordingly. Indeed, O God, we pray that through the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts gathered here in your sight, that it might be glorifying to you and you alone, for you and you alone are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the Corinthian church to which Paul writes in this letter is a hot mess. I don't know if that's the technical term, but that's what it is. You wouldn't necessarily know it by these opening verses to the letter, but if you were to turn the page, you would begin reading about all the problems that Paul has identified and diagnosed in their midst. Paul has received word from various couriers that the Corinthian church 
has changed a bit since he last saw them. The problems they now live with include things like partisanship amongst the pews. There are rival leaders who are trying to do battle for authority amongst the believers. There's chaos and worship, very unpresbyterian of them. There are rampant questions about divorce and sex and celibacy. But worst of all for Paul, there is inequality, particularly at the table. You see, the rich in this church, reports have come to Paul that they are going home from communion, fat and drunk, while the poor amongst them are left to dine on meager crumbs and a few drops of wine. You see, if we are to turn the page in this letter to the first Corinthians, we will find that Paul is about to hand it to them. A sermon on the rest of this letter might well be titled, Paul Uncensored, because he doesn't hold back. But first, first we are given these nine verses that open his correspondence to this troubled church. And it is as if in this opening, Paul is seeking to first remind them who they are. The opening verses to me read almost like a deep breath. It's as if Paul is saying to them, listen, I'm about to speak some hard truths to you. But first, first I want you to remember who it is you are. You are called, Paul says. Four times in nine verses, Paul evokes this language of call. You have each been called by God. You are equipped, Paul says. You don't lack any spiritual gifts. But most of all for Paul, he says to them, remember that you are enough. That language of God will keep you. God is faithful. You are called, you are equipped, and you, each of you, is enough. It's interesting, there's all this research in the fields of sociology and psychology about the dynamics within human relationships. And what that research has shown over and over again is that one of the most crucial dynamics in any human relationship is how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. Right? We all sense how it is others are perceiving us how they are viewing us when we're in conversation with them, and we tend to respond accordingly. If we're talking with someone and we discern that they hold us in some sort of high regard, whether we think we deserve that or not, our behaviors tend to follow. We tend to live up to that expectation. But conversely, if we are talking with someone and it is clear that they're looking for their next conversation partner, it's clear that they're not really into this conversation, it's clear perhaps even that they look down on us, our behaviors and attitudes tend to follow in that direction as well. 
one of the most crucial dynamics in any human relationship is how we perceive ourselves and others. Here's my diagnosis of the Corinthian church. They have a perception problem. They perceive themselves, how they perceive themselves, and how they perceive others within their church and their community. It's all out of whack. The rich are looking down on the poor. The strong are preying on the weak. Those in power are too blind to see that the way they got to that place is by stepping on the backs of the powerless. Paul, you see in this letter, he is applying a theological vision test to the Corinthian church, and the grade has come back F. Their perspectives are all out of whack. They have a perception problem. But here's the thing Paul wants to get across in the opening. God's vision, God's vision, it's perfect. And God's perspective of them is that they are called and that they are equipped, and that they are enough. And it is as if Paul hopes by naming that perspective God has on them, that their lives might begin to be lived accordingly. So there's this small town. Some of you may have been to it before. It's on the coast of Oregon. It's called Brookings. And in 1962, Brookings, Oregon was deeply, deeply divided. To understand why, you have to go back 20 years in their history to 1942, which is when Brookings, Oregon, became sort of the uniquely historical place that it is. Because it was on a night in 1942 when a Japanese submarine emerged from the waters about 20 miles off their shore, assembled a crude airplane, put a young pilot into it, and catapulted it into the air. That plane carried four bombs, and it dropped its four bombs around Brookings. Its unique place in history is that it is the only place in the continental United States that was bombed by an enemy power during the war. That pilot came back a few more times over the next few nights, it was all meant to be in retaliation for the Doolittle Raid, which was the United States' first bombing of Japan. Now, the Japanese idea in this bombing was that Brookings and the other nearby communities were surrounded by forests, and if they dropped bombs in the forest, it would ignite the forest, destroy the towns, and deplete the United States of an important natural resource. What they did not take into account, however, if you've ever been to the Pacific Northwest or lived there, the timber there is not exactly dry. <laughs> and so these bombs fell and they quickly fizzled out, doing little damage and harming no human life. It was 20 years later in 1962 when a group of young businessmen, part of the Junior Chamber of Commerce in Brookings, assembled to plan the annual Azalea Festival. And they came up with the idea of inviting this pilot to come to Brookings as a gesture of goodwill. Now, some were happy about this idea, and others weren't. A group took out a full-page ad in the newspaper decrying this invitation, 100 signatures, 
Neighbors began having steeped arguments in coffee shops and bars. One of the organizers even got a death threat in the middle of the night. Looking back on it, it seems to me that there was a perspective problem. Those who were opposed to it, in many ways, it was understandable. During those days, most of the adult men in that community and throughout the United States were veterans of the war. They had faced and experienced the harsh and merciless realities of battle. And on the other side of the ocean, this, this pilot himself was skeptical of the invitation. He worried that if he came, the best thing that would happen is he'd get rotten eggs thrown at him. And the worst thing that could happen is he might be arrested and tried for war crimes. And yet this group of businessmen, they stuck with their decision. And gradually in the lead up to this, this event, the perspectives changed. As both the group of people in Brookings and the pilot in Japan began to see the importance and the value of what this visit might represent. And it's amazing because when the visit happened, it, it began what became a much longer relationship between this small town and the individual who had once been tasked with destroying it. He not only came that one time in 1962, but returned many other times. A relationship formed. He brought high school students from Japan to do an exchange program with students in Brookings. He raised funds to donate books to lift awareness of multicultural relationships for the library in their community. He even donated a sword that had been in his family for 400 years as a conciliatory gesture, one that we can go see in the Brookings Library even today. And it all began this moment of unity, this moment of healing, because a group of people on one side of the ocean and an individual on the other were willing to see each other differently. You see, perception is a powerful thing. It has the ability to change our one-on-one -on -one human relationships, but it also has the ability to change the world. Right? Martin Luther King Jr., the man and the, the pastor and the activist who we remember on this weekend each year, he once preached a sermon titled, Love Your Enemies. And the crux of his sermon was vision and sight. He said in this sermon, within the best of us there is some evil. That's a good thing for all of us to remember. And within the worst of us there is some good. King preached, when we come to see this reality, we take a different attitude towards individuals. The person who hates you the most has some good in him. Even the nation who hates you the most has some good in it. Even the race, King preached, that hates you most has some good in it. And so when you come to the point that you can look in the face of every other person and see, see deep down within what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love in spite of 
I love that line. To love in spite of. No matter what the person does, King finished. You suddenly see God's image there. Friends, that is the task of the church, and that is the task of followers of Jesus Christ today. Because here's a a reality check. The world is still a hot mess. Now, we can quibble over whether it's any more or less a hot mess than it has been at other points in history, but I think the thing we can all agree on is that the volume has never been louder in this age of information. I mean, think about those things that plagued the Corinthian church and how they are still just as applicable today. Partisanship, rival leaders, inequity, chaos in public life, basic questions about truth and morality, fairness and justice. Right? These are all the same things that plague our nation that plague our communities, that plague our churches today. Whether we mean to or not, you and me, all of us are just as guilty of holding some in high regard and some in low. Oh, what do you do for a living? Oh. Implicitly or explicitly, all of us are guilty of telling people that they are either in the club or out of the club. That they are either part of the tribe or they are the enemy, right? We still divide ourselves along the same lines as back then. Jew or Greek, black or white, rich or poor, gay or straight. If we turn the page on Paul's letter to the church today, I think we would find that C still has a lot to say to us. Paul Uncensored would be just as at hand for us as it was for the church so long ago. But first, first Paul would invite us to take that breath. About an hour outside Brookings, now today, You can hike up a winding trail. And if you look hard enough amongst the old growth redwoods there, you'll find a tree that is a little different. It's a little more than a sapling now, but it's certainly not a full-grown redwood. It's a tree that was planted there in the late 90s towards the end of that pilot's life, the pilot whose name was Nubuo Fujita. The town named him an honorary citizen. And then they went out into the forest and they found the spot, the exact spot where that first bomb fell. And they planted a coastal redwood tree. A sign that even in the ruins, even in the mess, new life is possible. When I read about that, it occurred to me that that's sort of what Paul is doing here in the opening to his letter to the church in Corinth. Paul is planting a sapling for us. Paul is planting new life for the church. It's as if Paul is effectively saying in these nine verses, now listen, folks, in a minute, I'm going to have to talk to you about the mess that you are a part of. 
The mess that in many ways each of you helped to create. But first, first I want you to come with me into this forest that is called God's faithfulness. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to breathe deep. Feel the weight of that air. Y'all ever been in an old growth forest? The air is heavy. It's wet. It's fragrant. Breathe in that air, Paul would say to us. Feel the weight of God's love in you. The weight of that love that calls and equips and claims us. The the weight of that love that says no matter what the world says, that we are enough. Feel the weight of that love that loves us in spite of ourselves. That love that plants new life and the ruins of both past and present. Breathe it in. Now open your eyes, Paul would say. Open your eyes and look around and ask yourself, How can you possibly see the world with any less love than that? Friends, for the sake of the gospel, truly for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the world, may we today here in this mess of a world be ones who draw a deep breath, who open our eyes, and who see at last with a new perspective. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.